Before we consider God's word together this morning, let's go before our Lord once more in prayer. Lord, that is our, our hope. Until the whole earth is filled with your glory, which we know will happen according to your sovereign timeline, and we anticipate the joy of that day. Until then, Lord, we seek your face, still seeking to live moment by moment by revelation, by your divine speech to us. And that is why we are here, to lift praises to your name, to confidently know you hear our prayers, whether sung or recited, whether private or corporately led, leading us. We know that here we seek your mind. We thank you that you've revealed yourself May we rightly understand your word for us this morning. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. The school I attended growing up would oftentimes have a carnival that happened each fall. And it was, it was quite the event that every elementary school kid looked forward to. It was run by the high school seniors, and it was put on as a way to sort of raise support for their big senior trip that they'd go on at the end of the school year. So knowing that the carnival was coming up was quite exciting. And there was one featured uh, event or activity at these carnivals that was very, very uh, anticipated, and that was the maze. Now, the maze consisted of a whole corner of the end of the gym that was devoted to hundreds of cardboard boxes that had no less than thousands of rolls of empty duct tape rolls to make these channels and and this huge cardboard maze that was covered then by black plastic. So there was no way you could see. And the goal was that you would crawl through there. Now, seniors being seniors, they would hide out in there, and they would be there to scare and to grab an ankle or something like that. And so being the naturally courageous elementary school student that I was, do you think I did this? No, I did not. I would stand at the entrance, and I would watch people go, and I'd say, maybe next year, maybe next year. But absent from light, darkness is an inherently fearful reality. And I can assure you, even into adulthood, this continues for me. I think this summer we were at something that there was some sort of spooky house thing, and Rachel said, why don't you go in there and check it out for us? I made it about 10 feet and said, no, we're not doing this. (laughs) Moving on. So whether in childhood or adulthood, the presence of darkness is inherently a fearful reality, even for those far braver than me. But even from the opening pages of the Bible, darkness rules over the face of the deep, as we read in Genesis 1. And it's not a good thing, for the light gloriously penetrates the darkness, dispelling its power. Darkness is also widely used in, a, in its moral negative sense, as a metaphor for evil, used regularly by Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John, as we read in the Scripture reading this morning. And at the beginning of Colossians chapter 2, the Scriptures teach us that we as believers have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, a kingdom of light. Darkness and light are at infinite odds with one another. They always have been, 
And they always will be. And as followers of Christ, who is Himself the light of the world, we reflect that light insofar as we are indeed children of the light. So before we jump headlong into Ephesians 5 this morning, let's take a few moments and set the context of where we land in this glorious book. Well, the last time we considered the book of Ephesians together, we considered how chapter 4 unfolds. So perhaps you have your scriptures open and you want to just gaze over the second half in particular of chapter 4. We saw what the risen Christ has done to unify Jew and Gentile into the same spiritual family. The glorious gifts He has given for the spiritual upbuilding of His family, as well as the call to live in all respects as people who have been renewed in the spirit of our minds, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Our mouths, the text says, are strong indicators as to whether this new life has truly taken root within us. We are to speak the truth to one another. Both the truth that we like to hear, the truths that we need to hear of the glorious redemption we have in Christ, as well as the truth we don't always like to hear. That truthing that we commit to one another as a body in Christ to know we give to one another what we need, not just what we want to hear. And we are categorically a people that put away falsehood. We are to avoid corrupting talk so as to prioritize and to privilege speech that builds others up and and fits the occasion, resulting in grace being given to each other. Clamor, loud wrangling over noisy matters that, that don't have much substance, slander, tearing down one another, Malice, bitter, angry speech, all these things need to hit the trash bin in the life of the Christian. And why? Because, as Paul says, God in Christ has forgiven you. God in Christ has forgiven you. And we are new creations in Him. Paul now continues in what some see as the concluding thought to what has been progressing in chapter 4, and others see as the introductory thought to what is going to follow in chapter 5. So in other words, some might look at the very first two verses in chapter 5 and say, well, that's the summarizing most, most full, expansive illustration that Paul is working towards at the end of chapter 4. And others would say he's turned the corner, he's, he's moving in a different direction. Regardless, it's connective tissue. He's continuing on the same thought. It's carrying it on for us. And so regardless of where you want to divide it, we'll begin with verse 1 as the beginning of our separate study this morning. But not all that significant. The point is that Paul's burden is for us to know how we ought to live as the people of God. Created in Christ after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The outline for your benefit this morning as we walk through the text. Very simply, as God's beloved children of light, and we'll see that overarching these 14 verses here, 
we ought to imitate our Father by walking in love. We must learn the skill of running from the darkness, abstaining from the darkness. And lastly, of walking in the light, all flowing from this identity as children of God. So first, imitate your Father by walking in love. We read in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here in verse 1, the word here for imitating God is the Greek word mimites. So used in classical times to mean a copier or an imitator. This is the only time in the New Testament where this phrase, imitators of God, appears. Paul uses the word elsewhere, calling other churches to be imitators of one another as healthy uh, examples to one another, calling Christians to imitate Him as He imitates the Lord. But imitators of God is a unique way he puts it together here. Now, really good impersonations are pretty fun to watch. Have you seen someone imitate, uh, impersonate, we might say, someone that's well-known in society or in culture, and we might see someone speak with the exact mannerisms and with the exact cadence of speech and intonation of their voice and their mannerisms, and it's funny. We say, oh my goodness, I cannot believe They look exactly, and they speak, and they sound exactly like that other person. Now, it's not fun, negatively speaking, when imposters nefariously pose as someone else, stealing people's identity and such. The playwright Oscar Wilde is credited with the familiar phrase, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And Paul the Apostle can reach no higher than God himself when seeking to inspire Christians to live transformed lives through Christ. So as beloved children, mimic or imitate the character of your father. Every father who has a son knows the experience of his boy wanting to to dress just like his dad or to work in the same ways like his dad or to root for the same teams as his dad or to despise the same sports teams as his dad or to pick up the Fisher-Price miniature version of the regular-sized tool that his dad uses from time to time. And then comes the superhero phase when young boys pretend they are superheroes saving the planet. In my house, that happens every afternoon from about 1 to 3 p.m. And whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's cooking, architecture, fashion, what have you, all the great savants in every category admit to having a standard bearer that for them in their developmental stages idolized. That person that was, that was the standard bearer that they tried to emulate and imitate that made them perhaps what they are today. All they wanted was to be like their hero. And even into adulthood, imitation with greatness is something we never lose. But what often gets lost is our standard for greatness. It becomes warped 
And our imagination for greatness becomes not God, but idols posing for God. For the Christian, we are ontologically in our being programmed to admire greatness. We bear the image of God, and in this way we are designed to imitate Him. God's original intent in the garden was for Adam and Eve to imitate His glory by representing His image to the ends of the earth as they were to be fruitful and to multiply, creating more and more and more glory imitators to the corners of the earth. And where Adam failed in expanding the glory of Eden, the second Adam has triumphed and will one day consummate this glorious design. How does Paul envision the imitation of our Father in the lives of you and I, His people? It is through selfless, Christ-like love. Verse 2 reveals this. How do we imitate our Father? Through selfless, Christ-like love. Mimicking the character of God looks like walking in this way. Paul writes that Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. This is the same expression used negatively in verse 19 of the previous chapter, chapter 4, to describe the Gentiles who have given themselves up to practice every form of sensuality, greedy and and longing to fully and holistically and completely give themselves to the sins of darkness. The obvious conclusion that Paul makes is is that, wow, Gentiles give till there's nothing left to give to find satisfaction in the darkness. Positively speaking, Christ, the Good Shepherd, has given Himself up, holding nothing back in love for His sheep to be a sacrifice for sinners. This being no ordinary sacrifice, it was a fragrant offering that pleased the Lord. Hebrews 7 assures us that Christ fulfilled all the offerings and sacrifices represented under the Old Covenant by being, as the text says of Christ, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And He, Christ, has no need like those other priests to offer sacrifices daily first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people. Not with Christ. Since He did this once for all when He offered Himself up. There has never been a greater sacrifice for sin. There never will be a clearer display of God's love for the world. And as God's beloved children, we must imitate God by walking in the manner in which He walked. Selfless, Christ-like love. So as you send perhaps a thoughtful email filled with Scripture and words of encouragement to a fellow believer battling unbelief, as you lift up prayers of intercession for, for suffering saints among us, as you visit one another to share in one another's happiness, as you lovingly perhaps have to rebuke a proud heart flirting with apostasy, the thought of 
hitting the trash bin with all the true thoughts of what Scripture reveals. We must, in all ways, extend selfless, Christ-like love. And in so doing, imitate the loving care of God. As we consider and as we extend God's love through Christ, Paul warns us to run from the darkness. In verses 3 through 6, we read, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. So quick spins in the opposite direction are are not uncommon for Paul. As soon as we were really settling in to enjoy the glories, the reminder of what Christ has done to forgive us of all of our sins, Paul seems to grab us by the shoulders and say, listen, listen up. This is serious. The exact opposite of selfless Christ-like love is an ever-present danger in the life of the Christian. I'm speaking about lust. Those dark hunger pangs from within that try to convince you that you need the darkness to be fulfilled. Run from its lies. Abstain, Paul would say. Christian's lust is a longing that grows the more you feed it. It involves perpetually eating but never getting full. It's perpetually drinking but always remaining thirsty. Lust is always just one stop away from its destination. It never arrives. It never satisfies. It's a dark vacuum of hunger. Regarding the culture of Paul's day, one commentator notes this. He says illicit sexual activity was an enormous problem for the new Gentile Christians to overcome in the early church. Adulterous relationships, incest, prostitution, sexual abuse of slaves, sacred sexual encounters, so to speak, in the local temples, and homosexuality were all part of everyday life. There was not an accepted social standard with regard to sexual relations. So into this debased culture and context, Paul says, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality named among the children of light. He's not just hoping for a slight repair, you know, thinking we got a lot of, lot of things going against us here, a lot of ways that, um, you know, that, that these people are, are struggling in this area. Let's just you know, aim small and chip away at a few of them for the first generation. Then maybe another generation goes by and they start slowly improving. Paul goes full scale. Not even a hint ought to mark the new holy people of God. 
as beloved children of light, we have new hearts, and that's why. New affections, new longings, all of which result in new behaviors and new conduct. Paul says, let there not even be a hint. And when observing your life, are there handholds given to people who might observe your life that would call into question whether Christ is indeed the supreme object of your worship? Or if these things that Paul lists, which are idolatry, result in you worshiping the wrong things, in particular, immorality. Are others made to question whether the gospel is really as great as you say it is when they observe questionable decisions in your life? Right? Well, I know that they go to that church, and so I know Sundays is kind of what they say they're all about, but I don't know. The way that they give themselves in this way or that way just doesn't add up. See Paul's connection moving on between sexual sin, impure desires, and now sins of the tongue in verse 4. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking may well garner a laugh, but they do not garner the smile of God. Indeed, Paul echoes Jesus precisely, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Run from the darkness of a defiled heart that erupts in filthy speech. This is not a mark of God's people. Note the way in which Paul can speak collectively about sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. A, a, a grouping together that we may not naturally think of to group together. Noting in verse 5 that these are indeed acts of idolatry before God. So what does this teach us? God cares deeply that we worship Him through our sexual purity. That we put to death covetousness. And in its place, nurture thanksgiving as he writes at the end of verse 4. And what is at stake if you allow yourself to be deceived by empty words arising from individuals or perhaps a culture at large? That would see Paul's exhortations here as just downright foolish. Well, what's at stake if you go along with the deception of your own heart? Well, at least two things, Paul says. There's a forfeiture of an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. But there's also an earning of the wrath of God that is coming like a freight train one day on the sons of disobedience. So in other words, purity in all of life is a life and death matter. In his book, Sex and Money, Paul David Tripp writes this, he says, if you're going to live for God in, a, in the sexual domain of your life in a world gone sexually insane, you have to be willing to do a lot of running. You have to be willing to run from thoughts that work to paint as beautiful what God has forbidden. You are going to have to run from desires that at times seem too powerful to resist. You're going to have to run from the seductive whisper of the enemy who will lure you with lies. 
You are going to have to run from situations and locations that play to your weaknesses. And you're going to have to run from pride that tells you that you are stronger than you really are. You're going to have to run from selfishness that would allow you to use others for your own pleasure. You are simply going to have to run from anything, anywhere, perhaps any person that is immoral in the eyes of your Savior. You have to be willing to run. Now, just a couple qualifications. Running, or in other words, abstaining from sin is not running from our problems. Running is a way of fighting sin as we abstain from sin and live holy lives before God. Don't make that mistake. And then furthermore, just so there's no confusion there, Paul Tripp isn't suggesting that we remove all the non-Christian relationships from our lives. He's saying we do not partner in idolatry. We do not listen to deceivers. We do not share in sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness as the sons, with the sons of disobedience. So as God's children of light run from the darkness of sexual sin, whether it's in the heart or even upon the tongue, forfeiting inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God and earning God's wrath is no small matter. Paul keeps advancing his train of thought here in verses 7 through 14 as he regrounds his warnings in who these beloved people of God truly are. They are children of light. And as such, they must not merely run from darkness, but they must expose it. We see verses 7 through 14, the call to walk in the light. We read, Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I think it's a providential kindness of God that the last verse of this sermon text today is, Arise, O sleeper, just in case any out there. Partnership. Partnership with the sons of disobedience makes no sense for children of light. Darkness once ruled us. Notice Paul's force here where he says you were not merely in the darkness. You didn't just walk in darkness. You were darkness. But Christians are now light in the Lord. Praise God for this. Paul has been reminding us of this contrast all throughout Ephesians. Live out who you now are in Christ. Live it out. This is the new work of God through the gospel in the soul of man. And it looks like the fruit of light. Righteousness, goodness, truth. And yet, it takes work as he says, to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
This is wisdom living. I'm so thankful that much of the scriptures, Proverbs in particular, zero in on helping us know how to live in God's way in God's world. What does it look like? We know we don't have a scripture and verse for every single exact detail and scenario of life, but that is the skill of moral living that God has always been developing with his people when they love the law of the Lord and they allow it to be written on their hearts and carried with them through all of life. But it doesn't take the pain and difficulty away from it. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord as children of light. I'm thankful for Paul Perdue teaching a Bible class on this very topic. Guidance, decision-making, and the will of God. Seeking to do this exact thing. Discerning what is the will of God in all circumstances of life. In verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I believe is a reference back to verse 7, being partners with them, these sons of disobedience. So who is being addressed here? Is it unbelievers out and about in the world that we expose their sins for the wickedness that they are? Well, there's a few different ways of going at this, this verse. But seeing how the context seems predominantly controlled by warnings to Christians, at least professing Christians, exposing unfruitful works of darkness is a work of the children of light. I understand to be part and parcel to even restorative church discipline, that as we work actively with one another so that we might hold fast to our confession, that we might fight the good fight of faith, that we help one another, perhaps as we share difficult things from time to time, so that perhaps a wounding word, wounding in a good way, would keep us from eternal wounding. Exposing a person's sin, even, even done masterfully and appropriately, is, is never a joyous activity. It's always hard, oftentimes awkward and difficult. But God may well use it, especially if the collective voice of the church is required to send that message in love. In verse 12, we see how Paul has no interest in detailing the, the nuances and the specific ways in which these shameful acts of darkness are, are carried out. He seems to commend a high level of discretion, knowing that there is an unhealthy interest in how many uh, will we'll want to know the details of the way sinners sin. For the believer, this flirtation with the darkness does not bear the fruit of light. Goodness, righteousness, truth. In verse 13, we're reminded of Jesus' words in Luke 8 when he speaks of the foolishness involved in, in lighting a lamp only then to cover it with a jar. doesn't make any sense. The point is, as Jesus says in Luke 8, for nothing is hid and shall not be made manifest, nor anything secret that shall not be made known and come to the light. Jesus' counsel to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. 
But whoever lives by the light comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So as you and I imitate God by walking in selfless Christ-like love, it will invariably shine Christ's light into the darkness. And oftentimes that will cause there to be a recoiling and an uncomfortableness about those upon which the sinful deeds are being revealed. We ought to know that in preparation. Exposing the unfruitful works of darkness is part of what God does with children who imitate their Heavenly Father. As we know, this is an extension of His fatherly love to us. Verse 14 concludes this section by reflecting in a hymn-like manner on the various themes that have been mentioned so far. This, uh, perhaps a fragment of a hymn, is not a direct quote from any Old Testament text, any one specific Old Testament text. Probably our best guess is it's a combination of Isaiah 26, 19 and Isaiah 60, verse 1. And it was probably used in primitive baptismal ceremonies in which believers would enter the water and then arising from the sleep of spiritual death and coming to know then the light of life pictured in those symbols. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In a way, verse 14 and is perhaps signaling a call to remember the significance of one's baptism. Dear saint who may be becoming transfixed by the deceit of lies and lust and the unfruitful, shameful works of darkness, remember, he might be saying, your public profession that Jesus is Lord. Live in keeping with this. You belong body and soul to Christ. Live for Him and awaken your soul to the light of Christ. Indeed, the Apostle Paul says things very similar, that we should come out of the darkness and put on the armor of light, that we should do battle against the darkness in this way. Well, perhaps this morning you, you recognize through Paul's words here, which is God's counsel to you, you recognize that you are owned by the darkness. You may not recognize it as such, but you see clearly now, I, if I had to fall into a category, it, it, it would be a son of disobedience. You have not placed saving faith in Jesus and you consequently are not one of his beloved children of light. Well, know that this is not an exclusive club with membership rates so high that you could never possibly afford it. Not the case. God's family welcomes all who turn to him by faith and who long to know the cleansing goodness, righteousness, and truth found in the gospel of Jesus. But perhaps for the believer... One of our most needed responses is one of repentance. Has lust tightened a noose around your neck such that you feel it holds you in its deathly grip? Has a greedy, covetous heart that sees the toys and the abilities and the relationships that look so harmonious 
and the opportunities, maybe even spiritual opportunities within the church, perhaps the jobs or the family, the career, even the health, you name it, that other people have. And you have begun to consistently say within your soul, that ought to be mine. That ought to be mine. Why is it not mine? I want it. And I don't need to convince you that our social media world only just pours gasoline on those desires. Has your tongue become an instrument of unrighteousness, filthy and foul, where where has the beauty of thanksgiving gone from your lips? Have you perhaps become so accustomed to shameful works of darkness that they no longer set off the alarms in your conscience that they once did? Repentance is our best friend. It is a gift. It is not always pleasant to look at our sins and to call them what God calls them, but it is life-giving. Psalm 51 is not just history. That tells us how David responded after his notable sin by killing Uriah, committing adultery with Bathsheba. It is for the worship of God's people, personal and private. It is in the Psalter. It was to be used as an ongoing means of worship to reorient your soul and your heart time and again with the gift of repentance. Cries such as, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. May the bones that you have broken rejoice. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Cleanse me from iniquity. Blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is how Christians pray when they are convicted of sin and longing to walk as children of light. Awake, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. In fact, one of the reasons why the Christian church has given a benediction, a good word, as they depart, scriptural or summarily scriptural in, in content, is for this purpose. Remember the blessing of God as you go and represent Him in the world. Remember to live as children of light, and Christ will shine on you. Perhaps there are still some, though, that, that buckle in fear. You are extremely fearful at the reminder that this text bring, brings of the necessity of spiritual warfare and the need to run from the darkness actively, daily, regularly, and exposing that darkness for the fraudulent lies that they are. This, for many, creates great anxiety. It's so much easier just to imagine we're already home, right? Can't we just be at peace? Can't we just think on the happier thoughts of the Christian faith? Some will wonder, how will I ever make it through life as a Christian without succumbing to the endless barrage of temptations that I feel within and that I know will be without as I walk through life? I'm reminded of Christian's words in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. 
As he writes this, he says, It is always hard to see the purpose in wilderness wanderings until after they are over. I seek a place that can never be destroyed, one that is pure and that fadeth not away, and it is laid up in heaven and safe there to be given at the time appointed. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death, but life everlasting beyond it. I will yet go forward. So as God's beloved children, may we yet go forward in anticipation of eternal glory, believing fully that as we imitate our Father by looking at Christ and walking in selfless, Christ-like love, that as we run from the darkness, exposing it for the foolishness that it is, we will feel the preserving arms of grace carrying us until we see Christ face to face. Let's pray. Father, may this be our cry, that we long to be obedient children of light, who walk in love, who abstain from the darkness. Indeed, not just run from it, but we from the heart, hate it. Help us to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, knowing that it's downright hard and difficult to know in all the circumstances and relationships of our lives how best we are to expose the darkness and to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. What that looks like, Lord, is something that we desperately need your help and your Spirit's illumination to know how to fulfill this. We pray that we would arise from lethargy, from spiritual sleepiness. We would know the affirmation of Christ's pardon upon our souls, that we are indeed in the family if we are trusting in the gospel. And as such, We not only have this responsibility to walk, but we have the empowerment to obey what you've called us to do. I pray every heart here today would reckon with these truths and would long to obey them, whether that means coming to faith in Christ in salvation or yielding more fully to your spirit as we walk in obedience to you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.